Maverick News presents The Rick Walker Show Defrag Your Mind Good evening, Maverick family. Welcome back. Hello, new viewers. Great to have everybody here tonight. We have an exclusive report direct from Crimea coming up with Kevin Michalitsi, who will bring us up to date on this escalating conflict between Russia and Ukraine. A lot has been going on over there, and you haven't been hearing much about it in the mainstream media at all, simply being ignored or buried on back pages of newspapers and downplayed online simply because there is waning interest and waning support for what is happening in Ukraine here domestically in North America, in Canada and the United States. But Kevin will bring us the latest um, because we are seeing pretty extreme exchanges between both Russia and Ukraine back and forth. A lot of damage, missiles shot, drones used, and conflicting reports. Kevin will bring us, uh, I think, what is probably the closest thing you're going to find to truth very shortly. But we have other news to cover tonight as well. The third document dump in the Epstein scandal that has just happened. So we have all of the information on that for you tonight as well. We'll bring you up to date there. And Donald Trump is in Iowa campaigning, talking to, uh, you know, the MAGA faithful there ahead of all the, uh, the action that's going to be unfolding in Iowa. So stay with me because when we come back, We'll take you to Iowa, and then we'll dig in to the other top news of the day. Hello, world. Are you awake? Uniting humankind by liberating millions of minds at a time. Maverick News. The world is watching. The New World Order. Government overreach. The Great Reset. Mainstream media lies. Now more than ever. Independent voices are needed. Donate now at freedomreporters.com. That's freedomreporters.com. Maverick News. The antivirus program for your mind. Okay, so we do have all that Epstein stuff for you, but before we get into that, Let's uh, let's first dip into what's going on in Iowa with Donald Trump. Let's bring up that live speech right now. Here we go. Less than me. 
I got indicted because I said we had a rigged election. And it turned out I was right. It was rigged much worse than anybody thought. But unlike every other candidate in this race with me, you know, in your heart that I will always put America first. We put America first. And with God's help, our job will get done. And it'll get done like it did before. We did more. I mean, we rebuilt our military. We got the biggest tax cuts in history. We got the biggest regulation cuts in history. Right to try. Hopefully nobody in this room needs it. But, you know, we have Space Age. We have the greatest doctors and laboratories in the world. And uh, people couldn't use it. If uh, they were sick, they'd go to Asia, they'd go to Europe, they'd go all over the world. If they had money, if they didn't have money, they'd go home and they'd die. I got right to try so that we could take something that wouldn't be approved for five or six years by the FDA. I moved that up too, by the way. That used to be 12 years. We cut it down in half. And we'll, it was going further. But right to try gave you the right to sign a very quick document and get whatever it is out there. You know, they used to say, we can't do that, sir. There's great liability. Supposing they die, say they're terminal. They're terminal. Only terminal. You have to be very, very sick. People that are very sick that uh, you wouldn't believe the results. The results are thousands and thousands of people are living right now. You know, the uh, laboratories didn't want it because a lot of people would die and they didn't want that in the record. Uh, doctors didn't want it. Our country didn't want it because we didn't want the liability. And they signed something saying you have no liability whatsoever. There's nobody has any liability, but we got to do it. They're terminally ill. These are terminally ill people, and we are saving thousands of lives. And it sort of worked out the opposite for some of these great laboratories because instead of having liability, they're showing it really works because you're bringing people that were going to be dead very soon, and you're bringing them back to life. And, uh, you know, some of the stuff that they've done is incredible. So I'm very honored by that. They've been trying to get that for 54 years, and they didn't get it, but I got it. And, and we had to get it through Congress, too. Thank you. And that had to go through Congress. You know, much of it, you hear about all these executive orders, but a lot of the stuff to get it done and get it done right has to go through Congress. And we got that through Congress. It was a great victory. And uh, victories cannot come soon enough for our country. As we speak, the last remnants of our open and broken border are crumbling into rubble as millions and millions of people storm into the United States in the largest illegal mass migration in the history of the world. There's never been a country in the world, a third world country, banana republic. There's never been a, a, anything like what you're watching on television. And they pretend like, uh, like they've got it under control. Last month, they set a record. Hundreds of thousands of people, bigger than practically any city in your great state. I think bigger just about than any city came in just last month. And numbers like nobody. And they pretend like it's, uh, it's under control. It's not under control. It's totally out of control. And part of the reason they want them to come in is, in my opinion, because, look, they're not stupid. Anybody that can cheat on an election like that is not stupid, okay? Because they're professionals at cheating. But anybody that can cheat like that, they're not stupid people. So there's two things and then a third. Number one, they're stupid. Number two, right? Number two, they hate our country. And number three, they want those people to vote. And that's a bad one. That's the one that scares us most. And I'm telling you, they're signing people. That's what they're doing. And I believe now that that's why they're allowing these people to come in. People that don't speak our language... They're signing them up to vote. And I believe that's why you're having millions of people pour into our country. 
And it could very well affect the next election. And I believe that's why they're doing it, because uh, they know what they're doing. You know, if they could do as well in running the country, in making deals with other countries so we don't get ripped off every time. Every deal we have. And we might go back to that. But, well, here, bring this up. And Europe is a very similar size when you add up the countries, very similar to the economy. So they're in for 20 and we're in for 200. When I was uh, doing NAFTA, I went, I said, you know, uh, the NAFTA deal is so unfair. But NATO, you take a look at NATO, every deal is horrible. I've ne- I haven't seen any deals that are like good deals. So we renegotiated with South Korea, with Japan, with Abi, who was so great. But, you know, what happened to Abi? It was horrible. He was a great, great gentleman, great man. But we renegotiated the Japanese deal for the farmers and for manufacturers, and it worked out to be really good. Uh, we started off with a horrible base because it was so it was so one sided. You know, they sell millions of cars that we I said, Shinzo, let me ask you a question. How many cars are we selling in the middle of Tokyo? How many Chevrolets are we selling in the middle of Tokyo? I don't believe any. That's right. We have none. You know, it's a very one sided deal. And uh, we changed it around a lot, especially for the farmers, frankly, especially for the farmers. But we changed we changed all of these things around. And. We were, we were rocking and rolling. If you look back uh, 10 years, if you look back five years, you'd see that there was a statistic that was scary. China was going to overtake us in 2018 or 2019. And we were hitting it so good. And we picked up so much. We left them in the dust. We left them in the dust. They never even came close. And I always say, if we have a smart president, that will never happen. But now we're giving it all back to China what we're doing. And, you know, he wants to end the tariffs. These tariffs are bringing in billions of dollars that I put on China. No president's ever given, no president's ever gotten 10 cents, not 10 cents. And he wants to give it back. Uh, So far, he hasn't been able to because it's so much money that he hasn't been able to pull it off. But he would like to give it back, the tariffs. And if they do that, if they do give that back, China will literally take over this country economically. There you go. So there's Trump in Iowa. And we'll keep tabs on that through the night if there's anything earth shattering. Uh, But we have a lot of other stuff, a lot of other ground to cover tonight. So we should move on. He was talking about Ukraine and we're going to get to that. But first, let me just kind of address this whole Jeffrey Epstein document dump today. It's really our top story this evening. Um, which involves the latest developments in the legal saga connected to Jeffrey Epstein. Documents from a lawsuit led to the convicted pedophile who passed away in jail, passed away uh, before facing federal sex trafficking charges. All of this coming out today in this, not everything, but um, this third document release, this newly released batch totals over 13 hundred pages and follows earlier releases from um, Wednesday and Thursday with more expected to come. We will get these posted on our website as quickly as we can. The first two batches of documents are available on our news site at mavericknews.ca. Now, these documents are part of a 2015 civil defamation suit brought by Virginia Virginia Gouffre, who alleges she was 
sexually abused by Epstein as a minor with Ghislaine Maxwell, Epstein's former girlfriend, um, apparently, allegedly aiding in that abuse. She, I think, has a, a legal appeal, um, which she has filed. It's not clear where that's going to go, uh, directed at uh, her conviction. She says she was being used as a scapegoat. This week's unsealing comes in response to a December 18th court ruling prompted by media efforts to make the documents public. The total collection is anticipated to collect or involve really almost 200 names involving Epstein's accusers, well-known business figures, politicians, and potentially more. Now, the previous documents released, honestly, uh, I don't think there was a whole lot of additional information in there that we hadn't already heard before. Um, really just some confirmations highlighted in the previous documents were prominent names like Bill Clinton, um, Alan Dershowitz, among others. Uh, but I don't think that there was really much in the way of new information or new names disclosed. And keep in mind as well that this is not the client list. What we are getting here is documentation, um, transcripts of questioning, all of it related to this lawsuit involving Virginia Gouffre. But in other revelations today, a former Epstein employee, uh, as part of all of these documents, disclosed a list of influential individuals associated with Epstein during a 2009 deposition. Juan Alessi recounted encounters with former President Donald Trump, Clinton, Prince Andrew, and even former beauty queens and a Nobel Prize winner in chemistry. But again, I'm telling you, these names, I think all of them at one point or another, have been identified in the past. Uh, there are also mentions again of David Copperfield. Um, I think that raised some eyebrows, but uh, I don't know. Henry Weinstein mentioned in these documents as well. So... Pretty big stuff, kind of, kind of. I just don't know how much new, real new or useful information we're getting. Uh, we are seeing, though, that Hillary Clinton apparently was named as a witness in the court documents. I don't know if that shocks anybody or not, Eric. Prince, it says on this post on social media that I'm finding, went on to the record in 2016 and claimed that the New York Police Department found evidence on Anthony Weiner's laptop that she went to Epstein's pedophile island at least six times. And that laptop, it says here, also had evidence that Hillary and associates were involved in sex crimes against minors. At least that's what's being posted online. Any of these allegations are simply that at this point, allegations. I need to stress that none of these things have been proven in court. 
And so there's a lot of stuff being thrown around online. Take all of that with a grain of salt. But here I will bring up some of what we're finding here online through these documents. So I don't know if any of that that information about Clinton is true at this point. And I have to confess that when these things come down and... uh, You're sitting here without any real staff. One-man operation here today. It's a little difficult to go through a thousand pages and get the broadcast ready. So what I think we will do is uh, I want to show you these documents. And then... I'm going to go to a break and we're going to come back and talk to Kevin. And then on the other side of that, we'll have more on these documents. But here is today's. Group of exhibits. Oh, boy, I don't know if it's. uh, Very visible for you here, folks. Here we go. Gisley Maxwell, you can see, as you can see here, with some very familiar names, which we've seen before. As the court is aware, it says here, this defamation case involves Ms. Gouffray's assertions that she and other females were recruited by defendant to be sexually abused by Jeffrey Epstein under the guise of being massage therapists. So there's a lot to go through here. As this progresses tonight, we'll get more information out through the course of tonight's broadcast. And I will try to confirm or not unconfirm those allegations about Hillary. You know, as um, some people have been saying as well, you know, it's important to say that what we're getting here is actually, even with all these documents coming out, it's it's very incomplete. There's a lot of other evidence, apparently videotapes, possibly a lot of audio recordings. It isn't clear who might be in possession of those. It's also quite clear that um, there are a lot of other people involved. And so even, and it's, and this is just, documentation these are documents from one person just really the one person's case against maxwell and epstein this is the case involving virginia gufray 
And so we, you know, we're hearing that there are many other victims, many of them children, uh, minors. And so the real question, there are other, you know, some really important unaddressed questions that will remain even after all these documents come out. And, and those questions are things like who, you know, who are the other victims? Not that we will get those names, um, but all, but even more importantly is who are other perpetrators? Who are other world leaders even who might be involved in this? And are they being coerced, influenced, controlled in any way, blackmailed by whomever might have still possession of some of these damning and damaging pieces of evidence, videotapes, recordings, photographs, anything that could be held over someone's head in order to get them to vote a particular way when it comes to, say, funding for an arms deal or any kind of, you know, making any kind of decision with regard to anything political, really. As I said last night, I think it is something that rises to a national security risk because the people involved in this are so powerful overall. Also last night, I was making reference to the kind of, not only the kind of people that Jeffrey Epstein had been associating with, but also to, I made reference to a conference that he held on the island. And I wasn't off the top of my head able to at the moment, at that moment, recall the exact name and, and the exact information. But um, according to previous information that has, has been released, he was, Epstein was actually part of a, a group that conceived of the Clinton Global Initiative or the Clinton Foundation and donated money to the Clinton Foundation when it was created, he also co-organized a science event. And this is what I was referring to last night. I couldn't remember the details, but I did find the information on it to confirm what it was. And it was a science event that he organized with illusionist and skeptic Al Seckel. It was called the Mind Shift Conference. This is of particular interest to me because we have been speaking here on this program over the last number of months about psychological conditioning, information warfare, the use of the Internet to that end, and the methods, the techniques, the technology being used in that way for that purpose. So this conference took place way back in 2010 on the, on Epstein's private island, Little St. James, and he had s- some of the top minds in this field there, some of the, the leading, the world's leaders in psychology and I would say even mind control. People like Murray Gell-Mann, 
and I don't know this gentleman, but it's Leonard Mladenow, an American theoretical physicist and mathematician. He had uh, Gerald J. Sussman at that conference, a professor of electrical engineering at MIT. His research centers on problem-solving strategies and others, a Canadian-born scientist that uh, I had mentioned yesterday who is an expert in um, the use of language. I don't know if neuro-linguistics would be the right uh, way to describe it, but in that vein of, of, of research. In other words, how language is used to, I guess, control or influence people. Keeping in mind that Jeffrey Epstein had a long-standing history of relationships with the world's, some of the world's most powerful and richest people, arms dealers, financiers, politicians, royalty, and military companies, defense contractors, arms dealers, Israeli defense, connections to, to Saudi business people and a Saudi arms dealer. He's, he was all over the map on this, talking to people, associating with people, doing business with people from all kinds of different countries, and a lot of it in the defense realm, which really got my attention because in this current digital era, we are in an information war, and I, I thought this was this interest in psych psychology and bringing these kinds of people to his island suggests to me that like a lot of other world leaders, they wanted to have sway or influence maybe over some of the leading thinkers in this area. Epstein also had a very keen interest in eugenics and transhumanism also directly related to a lot of what's going on right now. And in fact, he had talked to people um, over time many times about seeding the human race with his own DNA. He wanted to impregnate groups of women at a time. And talked about using his New Mexico compound as a baby ranch. So he had also donated a lot of money to universities, other institutions. When these revelations about his honeypot operation came out and uh, his sex crimes some of these organizations gave the money back. Um, not all of them did. Harvard was one of the institutions that took money, and I don't believe they gave any of the money back. But it was embarrassing for 
a lot of the organizations that took the money. And because of the these revelations about Epstein's involvement or interest in eugenics, some of the organizations, some people associated with those organizations that took his money said that they probably should have looked a little bit harder, applied a little more scrutiny to where that money was coming from and what he, being Epstein, was really all about. So that's kind of where we're at with it at the moment. Um, we'll have more on this later in the broadcast. Let me just remove that. What we're going to do now, though, is I have to get to Kevin Michalitsi, who's over in Crimea, where we have been seeing um, an escalation in the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. And Kevin is right there on the ground doing great work, great journalism. And we have this exclusive interview with Kevin coming up on the other side of this. Okay, so just before we get to Kevin, let me just bring up this just to show you what we're dealing with here. So here's a BBC report. And um, they're saying that some residents are leaving Belgorod after deadly attacks there. So the governor there says several families have left the city, which is close to the Ukrainian border. 25 people, it says here, were killed and more than 100 injured. Um, in one of the deadliest attacks on Russia, it says here, since it invaded Ukraine. The attack follows a massive wave of Russian strikes on Ukraine a week ago, which killed 39 and injured over 160. Those strikes were described by Kiev as Russia's biggest missile bombardment of the war so far. It says Putin launched its invasion here, blah, blah, blah of neighboring Ukraine in February 2022. Hard to believe, actually, folks, that we're all now almost now two years into this conflict. And so this is the kind of reporting we're getting from the BBC. Also, we are seeing this. Here's The Guardian. And this, I think, is telling as well. Because... You're seeing Ukraine, Russia-Ukraine war. Ukraine says it hit Russian military unit in Crimea as Russia claims to have foiled attack as it happened. So you see, you're getting here, they're acknowledging you're getting conflicting reports, two, two almost completely different stories about the same story from both sides, because, of course, the first casualty of war is truth. So what we're seeing here is that it says, 
Uh, it is just after 6 p.m. in Kiev. Here's a summary for the main events from today. Russia's defense ministry Thursday, yesterday, early today, said its forces had foiled a Ukrainian attack on Russian facilities in Crimea and had destroyed no Ukrainian missiles, or sorry, 10 Ukrainian missiles over the peninsula. Ukraine attacked a Russian military unit near Yevpatoria in Russian-occupied Crimea. Thursday, Ukrainian Air Force Commander Mykola Oleschuk said on Telegram, he said, thanks to the Air Force pilots and everyone who planned the operation for perfect combat work. Says Russian hackers were inside Ukrainian telecoms company, Kevstar's system from, from at least May last year in a cyber attack that should serve as a big warning to the West, it says. Ukraine's cyber spy chief told Reuters, Ilya Vityuk, head of the security service of Ukraine's SBU, cybersecurity department, disclosed details about the hack in an interview also with Reuters. It says Polish farmers blockaded the Medica border crossing with Ukraine on Thursday. NATO chief Jen Stoltenberg is going to convene a meeting between NATO diplomats and officials from Ukraine coming up on January 10th. And the list of highlights goes on here. But we are seeing two things happen here. We're seeing conflicting reports coming out, and we are also seeing less news about this here in the West because everything is really being overshadowed by what is going on between Israel and Hamas here in the West. That's where all the attention is now focused. But what's going on in Ukraine is important because it's not just in Ukraine anymore. You have to keep in mind that Ukraine is now attacking Russia inside Russia. Why are they doing that? Optics, I think. And Kevin Michalizzi will no doubt weigh in on that as well and give us his views when we come back right after this. Promise, this time Kevin will be with us. So don't go away. The New World Order. Government overreach. The Great Reset. Mainstream media lies. Now more than ever, independent voices are needed. Donate now at freedomreporters.com. That's freedomreporters.com. Maverick News. The antivirus program for your mind. And welcome back, Kevin. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, Rick, thanks for having me on again. Um, I know that for viewers in the West, I'm probably almost the only source of real information about what's going on in Crimea. Which is exactly why we need you more than ever right now. We are only seeing, you know, sporadic reports. There is news out there, but you have to dig for it. It's not uh, at the top of of the headlines anymore. It's not like above the fold in the newspapers. It is, uh, it's, you know, buried now on page two, three, four, and even further back and online, you have to like, fit, like really search for it. It's not featured prominently. So I'm very 
grateful for the time you're spending with us today because I know that things have been escalating. There's been a lot of back and forth, <laughs> and uh, I can't really figure out where things are at. Can Can you just give us a, a broad overview, and then we can dig into some of the specifics? What's been happening in the last few days? Well, since uh, last time we talked, which was, gee, only about two weeks ago, I think, um, we had pretty much nothing going on in Crimea, but uh, Ukraine started striking Belgorod up in uh, northern Russia, up by Moscow, and they bombed the city center of Belgorod and uh, killed some civilians. So in his New Year's speech, Putin said that he was going to uh, increase strikes on Ukraine. And uh, that's actually what I've been seeing going on here. And uh, as I mentioned last time, we were expecting Ukraine was going to, uh, you know, save up a bunch of missiles and drones and make a strike on Crimea. And sure enough, yesterday, um, a fairly large uh, attack occurred. And, uh, and they also hit Belgorod again. So, um, but Russia has been striking back pretty much on a daily basis. They've been taking out a lot of the Ukrainian armed forces and uh, most of their weapons manufacturing, uh, storage facilities. And, uh, but they've taken a different approach to things. It used to be just like with Ukraine that only strikes at night because it's easier to get drones in undercover harder to see with the anti-aircraft. Russia has been doing all of their strikes in the middle of the day, and they're doing it for two reasons. The first one is that they want to show the West and the rest of the world that Ukraine cannot defend against Russian missile attacks. So they strike in the middle of the day, the missiles hit their targets, air defense in Ukraine doesn't get them. And the second reason is, is because they're uh, striking at weapons factories, UAV factories, um, you know, a variety of other, um, you know, ATGMs, mortars, um, they're wanting to get, basically kill the brain. So, They're getting the engineers who designed the UAVs, the ATGMs. They're getting the people who build them. And, uh, you know, if you kill the brain, you kill the entire manufacturing. Yeah, and these attacks have been uh, among the most aggressive we've seen in quite some time. Do you have any idea what kind of numbers we're talking about here in terms of missiles used or drones? I really don't. Um, I the reports I'm seeing is they are doing massive attacks on Ukraine. Um, let me pull it here. I've got something here. Um, last week, they had on one day forty missiles arrived in Kiev in one attack, and less than half of them were shot down by anti-aircraft and. Uh, like I say, those attacks were all on assembly factories 
military warehouses and airfields. So they've taken out, you know, a lot of their remaining aircraft and things like that. But 40 missiles in one day compared to, you know, in multiple days compared to Ukraine, you know, we had 10 missiles yesterday in Crimea, 10 in Belgorod. Yeah. And has the, uh, has the Russian air defense system been working well? I, I'm getting the impression that they're shooting down just about everything Ukraine is, is sending over. They are. And, you know, they're making a big deal about the massive attack on, you know, January 4th and 5th. But reality is, is during the past week, um, the Russian aircraft and air defense systems have shot down and destroyed one Su-27 aircraft of the Ukrainian armed forces over Crimea, a Mi-8 helicopter over Crimea. Uh, the the numbers I've got from the Ministry of Defense says eight Storm Shadow cruise missiles, but uh, as of yesterday, they shot down another 10. So um, 18 Storm Shadow cruise missiles, 14 Tochka U tactical missiles, three S-200 air defense systems that had been converted to fire at us, 107 HIMARS, Alder, and Vampire uh, HIMARS rockets, three HARM anti-radar missiles, and 253 UAVs. That's just in Crimea. So, you know, this is over seven days. That's that's substantial. That's that's yeah. that's among the bit. Those are that's the most we've seen in a while. Yeah, yeah. And like I say, the response from Russia is you know much much greater than what Ukraine is is throwing at us, particularly after they hit civilians in Belgorod. Yeah, and that's and it, it, I'm thinking the reason we're not hearing more about this here in in the West is likely because the, uh, the Ukrainian efforts have been largely fruitless. Yes. Um, really the biggest thing that they had was that strike on Belgorod where they killed some civilians. I don't recall the exact number, but, um, you know, 10 missiles yesterday into Crimea and they weren't all shot down. Um, let's see. Yeah, well, let me just start at the beginning here. The missile attack started about 5.20 p.m. yesterday. But the Ukrainians took a different approach than they usually do on a Crimean strike. Um, this time, they were better prepared. Um, their aviation uh, moved to several bases to spread out where they were coming from, three different uh, airfields. And about 4.20, there were five Su-24 bombers uh, and two MiG-29 fighters that took off from uh, three different air bases in Ukraine. And, of course, they were detected. They launched the Storm Shadow cruise missiles, 10 of them, and several ADM-160 MALD decoys, which are decoy missiles that 
don't really blow up. They're just to try to confuse the air defenses, get us to shoot off air defense missiles at them. Um, so those missile strikes started at about 5.20 p.m. here, and uh, there were 10 missiles, like I say, that were, were taken down. Um, they weren't all shot down. Some of them uh, fell harmlessly, not at their targets. Uh, but at 10 p.m. last night, um, a Ukrainian patrol boat uh, was heading towards Crimea, packed with explosive, and a Russian Federation uh, ship destroyed that. And then there were a couple of missile attacks on Sevastopol and uh, three groups of drone attacks, really. And they started right around midnight. Um, they were both air and sea gr- drones. The first drones were shot down on approach to uh, Saki, which is where uh, one of our airfields is in Crimea. And uh, that's where a majority of the drones were shot down. The next drone work began on Evpatoria, which is off the coast of uh, north of Sevastopol. And out of 36 UAVs, 11 were shot down by air defense systems and guys with rifles and the rest were taken down with uh, electronic warfare. So, and the goal of these attacks is really to reveal where the air defense units are, uh, the composition of the air defense units, and what actions they take during a raid in preparation for another attack. So we then had another drone attack uh, that came from Odessa about 1 a.m., It was actually guided by an American Poseidon working off the coast of Romania. So it was directed by the good old U.S. of A. And uh, so what we had yesterday, we had air defenses going off in Sevastopol, Saki, Balaclava, which is near Sevastopol, a little closer to us, Kerch, which is where the bridge is, Yevpatoria, and uh, Novorossiysk, which is actually on the other side of the bridge on mainland Russia. And they're guessing that was to see the air defenses there so that they can uh, make an attack on the bridge. So we're expecting an attack on the bridge in the next couple of days. So this is this is definitely escalation. And, and when last we spoke, uh your thoughts were that Ukraine was going to push forward, try to score some sort of a victory to show the White House that they can indeed make some progress and just and find justification or help Biden find justification for additional funding. Um, yeah, and not working. It's not working, and really, you know, my thoughts are is they're really looking for a PR win here. And that's all. It won't be any tactical advantage to them to hit the bridge or anywhere else in Crimea. It'll just be the PR of, hey, look what we've done. Yeah, so today I was reading in Foreign Affairs at foreignaffairs.com, 
headline, the war, it's just in front of me on my screen, the war in Ukraine is not a stalemate. Last year's counteroffensive failed, but the West can prevent a Russian victory this year. Uh, that's the headline. And if you just read down, it, that seems to be a story that's trying to put a positive spin on a, on something that really is an admission of failure, in my view. Yeah. And, you know, we keep seeing reports out of the West here that it's a stalemate right now. But if you look at, you know, any of the analysts, any of the guys who are actually on the ground there, Russia is making massive movements into Ukrainian territory. Um, you know, last thing I saw this morning is they've actually advanced into and through three cities and are looking at taking a fourth city. So, um, you know, there's advances being made by Russia. I actually commented on somebody's Medium article yesterday where they talked about how Putin was going to have to negotiate because Ukraine was holding them off and he had an election coming up next, you know, in March. And uh, all I could comment to the guy, oh, and the uh, economy here is going down the drain. And all I could comment to the guy was with actual links to data that the economy here has actually grown, whereas the U.S. economy has actually shrunk in the last year. And Putin, you know, realistically, he will be president again. Um, you know, people will vote for him. He's got like an 86% approval rating. So, um, you know, it's just all propaganda in the West trying to set up for a, you know, getting a negotiation out of Putin so they can say, see, we pushed Putin so hard that he had to negotiate. And Putin made it very clear in a statement he made at a uh, military hospital on the first of the year that he was increasing strikes on Ukraine and he was not going to stop until he has denazified Ukraine, including the government. And he made a, another comment of the territories of Western Ukraine. He doesn't want all of Ukraine, but if they want to join back with Poland, Romania, um, Hungary, he's all for supporting that. So what do you think the end of this might look like? It's, it's, we don't have, you know, very accurate crystal balls but what does Putin have to do to bring this thing to a conclusion? Or what does Ukraine need to do to bring it to a conclusion? Uh, it seems to me Ukraine should be looking to get back to the bargaining table and, and, and negotiate something while they still have some leverage. But if that doesn't happen, what does Putin need to do? Does he need to push all the way through and take the whole country and then, or what? I, I, I don't see a clear path to, uh, to, to, to finishing this thing. You know, he doesn't want the whole country. The only thing he wants is what has historically been Russian territory. And he stated that just in the last couple of days again. So that will be Kharkiv to the north. 
It'll be the entire Donbass all the way up to the Dnieper River, and it will be down across Odessa on the south. And, you know, with his support for Western Ukraine rejoining their historic territories, that'll leave Ukraine as a rump state. Now, the problem Ukraine has is Zelensky signed a law where they can't negotiate with as long as Putin is president. So it's going to take somebody like Jaluni, the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, or Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, um, overthrowing Zelensky, running him out of town, or the U.S. saying, you know, hop on an airplane and, you know, get over here to Miami to your, you know, your condo or your villa in Italy or, you know, your villa in Israel or Sweden, all these places he bought with U.S. money. Um, you know, that's what it's going to take is getting rid of him and getting people who are willing to sit down and say, okay, um, we will give you these territories if you shooting at us, and we will agree not to join NATO. Putin doesn't care if they join the European Union, but NATO is out of the question. Yeah, And of course, we've got some British colonel today spouting off that if Ukraine loses any more territory, um, NATO is going to have to get involved and go in and fight Russia. Um, you know, that's kind of the wet dream of you know, the British, they seem to have lost their minds as well. Yeah, well, we hear some rhetoric like that here, too. And I see John Kirby stand up at the uh, the news conferences every day at the White House and uh, and answer some question where he injects the, you know, the the, re- the ongoing request for more money and the need to continue to fund this thing. But I don't know if the, the public here has the, the stomach or any stamina left for it, especially heading into this election year. There's a lot of chaos over here. Can you give me some sense of what the public mood is like over in, in Russia? Here, the, the political scene is very polarized. Uh, you, I mean, the United States is almost in the minds of some people on the verge of a civil war. Is there any thing like that going on in, in Russia is that it seems to me things are more stable there. Yeah, things are very stable here. You know, we've heard reports that um, Putin, elimin- you know, Putin will be president because he eliminates his opposition. Reality is, is uh, Navalny was put in jail for breaking the law. Um, another candidate was uh didn't fill out the forms properly to declare her candidacy and uh so the election commission wouldn't take her but there's actually seven or eight other candidates running against putin but he has so much support all the new regions crimea they you know the only thing you see is elect putin Um, This is what the people want. They love the man. They love what he does for the country. The economy is stable. Now, you know, they have some propaganda as well. Um, You know, all governments do. They say, oh, you know, we have very little inflation here. But, you know, 
where we're seeing it is Irina went the other day to uh, buy butter and she used to get 500 grams for one price and now she's getting 330 for that same price. So we do have some inflation here. Um, gas has gone up a little bit. We're still paying, you know, gee, 56 rubles a liter. So what, five times three, 150. Uh, so about a buck and a quarter for a gallon of gas. Um, you know, it's gone up. It's gone up about eight cents in the last two years. And uh, people are happy. You know, we we just go along with our lives. People don't worry as much about um, the war. They don't worry so much about the economy. People are working. Unemployment is extremely low here. And the government is putting money not only into the military, which is the part Western news outlets put out there. And they say the people are suffering because of it. But Putin, for the second year in a row, has increased um, payments to pensioners, disabled people, teachers, doctors. He raised the minimum wage. And uh, he's now, for a woman who gives birth to three children, gives her a house to live in. No, it's not, you know, a big fancy one, but it's enough to raise a family in. And they get a payment for every child that they give birth to. And he's, he's made immigration easier for Westerners. <laughs> Are you seeing much uh, much immigration from the United States, Canada, North America, Western countries? Yeah, uh, last report I saw, there were, you know, it was like 3,000 some odd Westerners who immigrated to Russia uh, in 2023. And, you know, several thousand people who have come here on work permits to work in Russia because they need specialists like IT people, biologists, and um, you know, sanctions have been great for this country. They're developing everything locally. Uh, the oligarchs, you know, they're oligarchs, you know, in the West, you call them, you know, rich people. <laughs> so, um, you know, they're because they don't want to invest outside of the country right now because the United States is threatening to take more money away from them. They're investing it in the country here. Yeah. And those businesses like McDonald's and, uh, you know, the, the, the big corporate chains, the retail outlets, even the credit card companies. Bring us up to date on what's happening with all of those Coca-Cola, all these brands. They've been rebranded in some cases and the products are still the same or similar. Yeah, you know, Russia kind of did that well. These companies that wanted to pull out, they passed a law saying you can pull out, but you're required to sell it to a Russian investor at, I don't remember the exact percentage, but it was pennies on the dollar. And 50% of the sale price they have to give to the Russian government. So... These guys lost a lot of money going out. These 
Russian businesses picked them up, rebranded them. Um, I've been in, you know, here in Crimea, what used to be a Kentucky fried chicken. It's now called Crimean fried chicken. And, you know, the chicken's a little different. You go in and, you know, you get chicken without bones in it. They take the breast and they, you know, take it off the bone and, you know, but it's still deep fried. You can still get spicier, regular. The colors are the same. The buckets are the same. Um, but, you know, they're now selling things like uh, herbal teas and fruit teas and and things like that. So they've made some changes. McDonald's is now, um, oh, I don't remember the name of it because we don't have them in Crimea, but, uh, you know, something like Happy Burger or something. And you go in, you know you're in a McDonald's. Uh, you know, it's run the same way. Coca-Cola, they left the Coca-Cola bottling plant here. They've renamed it to Dobre Cola. And um, I buy it. it uh, I buy their diet version, and it's Diet Coke. And their regular version is Coca-Cola. It's the same thing. Um, Dan and yogurts here are now rebranded to another name, exactly the same, same packaging, same colors, but you know, Oh, it, uh, cause they own Activia and now they call it here Activia. <laughs> I just looked up the McDonald's name and it's Vikuzno Tochka. Is that right? That's what it says. Yeah. Here. In Russian, that's what it is. Yeah. Man, some of them. Some of them. But you've still got, you know, you can still go to Moscow. You can still go to Burger King and Pizza Hut. Uh, you can still buy, uh, you know, your Swedish shoes here. Um, you know, lots of brands that have either just renamed or they're selling and they're being quiet about it. So tell me what's going on with the automotive industry there. Uh, first of all, what's happening with the brands? Are you still able to buy Fords and GMs and Teslas? And I don't know what, uh, what other brands are there? Volvos and Hondas and Toyotas and, and Russian you, brands, I guess, too. Yeah, you can get those vehicles. They're much harder to get right now, and it's harder to get parts for them. Um, Ford quit manufacturing in Belarus, um, you know, because they got dragged into this as well. But um, like Mercedes, they still have a manufacturing plant in Moscow. They still shove Mercedes Benzes off the line. Um, Kia is very, very big here. Um, but is what you've had go in, you know, I haven't seen a Toyota, a new Toyota for a while. Like I say, you can find them. Um, Fords are next to impossible to find. GMs are actually sold under a different brand name and they're actually manufactured in Ukraine. So um, they may disappear or they may be getting manufactured here as well. They're made out of uh, seconds of Chevrolet parts. So Chevrolet sells them the seconds that they don't use on their own vehicles, and they make these vehicles out of them. And uh, 
But what has taken over the market is Chinese cars. So we have Geely and Cherry, and these used to be very cheap cars here. Um, I could buy one for a you know a million rubles, uh, fully loaded, which is about uh, ten thousand dollars. Now they're running three, four million rubles, five million rubles. So you're talking, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars, and they're still cheap, uh, cheaply made. I should say they're not cheap price wise, but they're cheaply yes. made. Um, you know, but people are buying them. Uh, personally, I'd buy the Russian brands first. We have Lada's. They haven't gone up in price. They've been around for forever. They have some nice vehicles. Uh, the Uaz Patriot is kind of like the Russian version of the Jeep. And I can buy one of those for $15,000. Fully Whoa. loaded, stick only. You can't get it with an automatic. They started making automatics, but they've been having trouble uh, getting the parts for the automatic transmissions. So they're designing their own now. So uh, is the manufacturing for the parts and the auto industry in general there, the assembly and everything, is most of it from Russia or do they, do they rely on a lot of parts from China and other countries? Well, you know, they, they do rely on parts for many things from other countries, but Russia has taken the attitude that on things like cars that they manufacture, um, airplanes, that they're creating their own uh, parts that they didn't use to supply before. The um, SU airliners, you know, we have the SU fighter jets, but they also, the company, the Sukhoi company also makes jetliners. And they used to use European engines in them, Rolls-Royce engines. And when they couldn't get parts for them and they couldn't manufacture those, they stopped the airliner. They never released it. And it took them about a year. And now they've started developing it and they've just released it with all Russian parts. ATM machines could not get foreign parts for ATM machines. So now Spurbank has released the first all Russian uh, ATM machine. Everything designed and developed in Russia. Interesting. So what about the electrification of the auto industry that uh, they're all in over here, you know, pushing hard, retooling all of the, the factories, billions and billions and billions and upon billions upon billions of dollars in taxpayer money being invested into this, given to these multinational corporations to push ahead with this initiative? What's happening over in Russia? Are they are they as aggressive with that over there? I'd say they're aggressive with it, but it's not like you hear about it every day. They just went ahead and did it. Uh, you can buy an electric Tesla here. We see them all over the place. So Tesla does sell here. Um, the one that hit me just a couple of days ago is the Buhanka, uh, which is the old green, looks like a loaf of bread van. They've just released an electric version and we have charging stations all over the place. So there are electric cars here. The Chinese produce them. Um, you know, even in Crimea, you know, you don't see a lot of charging stations, but they're popping up all over the place now. Are there 
government regulations or quotas in place. Uh, for instance, here, starting in about a year and a half or two years, they're going to start to cap the number of gasoline vehicles that manufacturers will be allowed to sell, which will create a shortage. Uh-huh. And they're going to start to force people. And I think it's by 2035, you will only be able to buy new electric vehicles here in Canada. Are they doing similar things in Russia or no? No, not at all. You know, so, they give the people the choice. Um, our gas is cheap. What you do see a lot of people doing here is they want to economize on gasoline. They'll put propane tanks on their cars. Um, you know, electric vehicles are fairly popular in bigger cities like Moscow or St. Petersburg. Uh, they're becoming popular elsewhere, but, uh, you know, it's just people do it because they want to do it. So they are giving people the choice, and it seems like there's more <laughs> more of a free market in Russia today than there is here. This is very, you know, government. This is entirely government-driven over here. It's centrally planned for sure. I would say the entire auto industry here has been essentially captured by government. It's now controlled, directed entirely by government. It's um, unprecedented, really, what's going on. Yeah. No, not here. Very interesting. You know, just coming back to this um, this war, the, what else do you call it? The, um, there are reports today where the U.S. is expressing concerns and sounding alarm bells because they're saying Russia is using missiles from North Korea. Hmm. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I have big thoughts on that. I saw that, and of course, the U.S. has called a Security Council meeting. Now, you know, my first thought is, is what's the difference if Russia is getting missiles from South Korea? Right. Ukraine's getting them from the United States and Germany and so on and so on and so on. What's the difference? They're actually North um, Korea, but yeah. Um, yeah, um, but realistically, Russia is at a full wartime uh, you know, economy right now. They're producing this stuff themselves. Now, are they using any from Korea? Maybe. You know, they used, they were accused of using Iranian drones. They said they weren't. They got like a plane load or two of Ukrainian drones. They saw how the Ukrainians made them. They maybe got some parts from Ukraine, but they're now manufacturing those um, Iranian drones in Russia. So, you know, it's all Russian produced again. So maybe they got some missiles from North Korea and, you know, they have a longer range. They can carry more um, explosives. But is what they'll do is they will take those systems apart, see how they're made, and they will start producing them here. Um, you know, it's funny here in the U.S. complaining about things because before this attack Last night, we had an Air Force, a U.S. Air Force, RQ-4B Global Hawk patrolling off the coast of Crimea for 20 hours. That's a drone that actually looks for targets, listens to radio communications, um, and gives targeting targeting information to the Ukrainians. During the attack... 
an American RC-135W rivet joint was used during the attack. And what a 135 rivet joint is, it's a dedicated electronic surveillance aircraft that, um, you know, is employed to direct strategic and tactical uh, missile missions. Uh, They soak up the electronic emissions from communications, radar systems, and so on. And were actually NATO F-16 fighter jets from Romania that helped carry out these missile strikes yesterday. Now, the Air Force chatter says that they were piloted by foreign pilots, but the Romanians are saying, no, 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 we trained Ukrainian fighters to fly these jets, and they just flew our U.S. uh, F-16s. Now, they must have also talked them to speak in Romanian, but, um, you know, so as much as you're not hearing the things in the West and it's kind of gone on the back burner, the U.S. is actively trying to help Ukraine do these strikes so that they can get the PR, take it back to Congress and say, see, we need to give them more money, see how well they're doing. You know, we're doing most of the work, but see how well they're doing. Yeah, the the reports I'm seeing here, well, even in that uh, article from Foreign Affairs, they're saying that the reason the counteroffensive didn't really work with uh, Ukraine or for Ukraine is because the troops did not have enough time to adequately train, that they are running out of munitions, that they need more support from the West. That, again, it doesn't sound good. And it sounds like there is sort of an ongoing race here to rearm, re, re-equip, re, you know, re-man what's going on. But I think I'll get your thoughts on this. Where is Ukraine at with this? Where is Russia at with this? Again, it looks like Russia absolutely has to have the upper hand there. Russia has the upper hand. They are not going out and... um you know, throwing people on the front line. They twice a year, and they've been doing this twice a year for years and years now, they call up 143,000 conscripts twice a year. Young men that are sent in for military training, they, you know, are actually doing a lot of support work, and they're using the um, more experienced soldiers on the front lines. But they've got tens of thousands of volunteers a week going to the recruiting stations and saying, I want to go fight. I want to fight for my motherland. So, you know, they don't have the same situation. Ukraine's throwing, you know, more and more elderly people. They've raised the age limit. They're sending younger kids now, you know, 15, 16 years old. They're sending you know, disabled people, guys who've been, you know, critically wounded, healed, maybe they've got a prosthetic leg or something, and they're sending them back out to fight. And now they're stopping women from leaving the country, and they're calling up women to go fight. They're trying to get the Western European countries to send their you know, Ukrainians back to the country to fight. 
And, you know, most of them are going, well, you know, yeah, they should go back, but it's not up to us to make them go back. You know, so it just is not a good situation for Ukraine. I actually talked to a couple of my Ukrainian sources uh, just yesterday and today, and I was told that the Ukrainian military has confirmed that they have a shortage of uh, air defense missiles. Uh, Lieutenant General Sergei Naev said that there are only enough man pads for a few attacks by Russia. And the U.S. has promised them a thousand Patriot missiles, but that's a cost of three to eight billion dollars to the United States, and it now has to be approved by Congress. And they use two to three missiles to destroy one target. So when you have Russia shooting 50 missiles at you, you know, you're now burning up a hundred of those Patriot missiles to 150 of those Patriot missiles. They just can't sustain this. That's huge money, huge money. And the United States is spread thin around the world to begin with, with all of its military bases. And now facing really conflicts on two fronts. And if something happens with China and Taiwan, they would be on three fronts. That's spread extremely thin. How much of an impact do you think that kind of dynamic is is likely to have on this conflict in Ukraine? I think it's going to make all of those conflicts fail. I think the more the United States tries to spread itself, the worse it's going to be not only for the countries that are fighting these battles, but for the United States. I think that's the only reason the United States is so involved in trying to get a PR win for Ukraine now is because Biden thinks he can win by being a wartime presidential candidate. And, you know, I think that's foolish to begin with. I don't think that's going to work well for him, considering a vast majority of people are tired of spending their tax dollars on other countries, multiple other countries, and them suffering. I mean, I think you're seeing the same thing in Canada. The more you send to other countries, the higher your prices go, the lower your standards of living go. Now, today I was seeing reports that um, South Crimea is evacuating people from some of the islands that are closer to North Korea because North Korea has been firing artillery shells at them. So... Now are we going to have another one there? Because the United States is is bound to go in and protect South Korea. So are they going to fight South Korea, Taiwan, Israel, Ukraine, you know, Serbia? They, they've been trying to start a color revolution there. I know from friends in Armenia, they've got, you know, U.S. assets running around there stirring the pot up. I how much can the United States do? This, in my mind, as it continues to escalate from one front to another, to another, to another, it threatens the very existence of the United States. Just the the economy alone, I can't see how the U.S. can possibly 
afford this, can possibly sustain this. There's a fraction of the manufacturing base in Canada and the U.S. that there used to be. There just isn't the economy there anymore. You can't just print money out of thin air and expect to pay for everything either. That's only going to go so far. Uh, I just, I'm not sure where this leaves us over here. I think that we're in peril. Yeah, I think, I think it's a big peril and, you know, what's propping up the economy, at least in the United States is the wartime machine. You know, the more weapons they ramp up to produce, the more money these big military companies are taking in, they're kind of propping the economy up so they don't go into a recession. But what do you do with the millions of other people that now get put out of work? You know, you can say, well, gee, our GDP is up, but uh, the numbers I saw just a couple of days ago is they're claiming their GDP is up like 6%, 5.6%. But it's actually up 2.9% according to all the guys who track this stuff out there, the international companies that do, and that's a 2.6% decrease from the previous year. So they're falsely propping it up as well. Yeah, and you know, you can't you can't eat missiles, you know, a missile is not wheat. Um and and it doesn't do the people here any good if everything produced and the wealth from that is shipped overseas and then blown up. Um, it might mm-hmm. enrich some people beyond belief, but for the average person, it doesn't do them any good. I mean, it's okay if you're working on the assembly line producing military goods, I guess, but uh, overall, I, it seems like it's a false or unsustainable economic model. Yeah, and this um, march that they're going towards of let's confiscate more Russian assets mm-hmm. and give it to Ukraine, um, is what I see happening there is if Europe and the United States decide that they're going to take another $300, $400 billion of foreign assets of Russia, is what's going to happen is there's going to be even more countries that start saying, hey, BRICS, I want to join you and I want to start trading in my national currency because we can't trust the dollar, you know, if, if we're holding dollars, they're going to take them away from us if we have a problem. Yep. And, uh, you know, the U S dollar is really propped up by oil. They're not drilling for oil in North America. The energy industry is really under attack by the government itself. We've become, you know, reliant on imports of oil, but again, over in Russia, they're producing natural gas, they're producing mm-hmm. oil, they're producing energy. And that has to be one of the main reasons you're paying less for fuel, that your inflation rate is lower, that you have more economic stability. Thoughts? Yeah. Well, you know, Saudi Arabia isn't trading in the petrol dollar anymore. You know, they're trading in national currencies with people now. Um, you know, yeah. I think that's why things are good here. And, um, you know, I talked to one of the Duma members, uh, was June of June of 2023, I guess it was. And, uh, I have that interview on my site somewhere, 
but she was saying, you know, empires always rise and fall. And her view was, is that the American empire is in a decline and the Russian uh, empire is growing. So sanctions have caused Russians to focus on Russia. Tourism in Russia is up because they can't go to Europe. Uh, you know, production is being done in Russia. Tourism, uh, you know, people are being given jobs here. And there's actually a shortage of labor now. They have a complete list. It's like 186 professions in Russia that if you work in one of these professions, they will let you come here on a work permit, work for a year, and give you citizenship. It's because they need people. It seems as well like uh, there, there's been a real missed opportunity here because you only have to think back just a few years ago and Putin wanted to join the European Union and was rejected. It seems like there was a real opportunity to forge a much closer relationship and build on all of that and make it productive and constructive. And what have we, what do we have now instead? We have war. Yeah. I saw a picture today that was in a TASS magazine from, uh, it was probably 30, 40 years ago. And they had the British American and Soviet flag flying together and the caption was I'll paraphrase it because I don't have it in front of me but something about friends working together for the betterment of the world you know what happened I don't know it seems like maybe greed and the worst parts of uh, the the worst traits of humanity and and people kind of bubbling to the surface when I look at what's going on right now with the uh, you know the the release of these Jeffrey Epstein documents um, and all of the people, all these Western leaders who are being named, uh, these names coming out. It's it's just the worst of the worst side of, of people, uh, the worst parts yeah. of society. It's absolute corruption. It's um, uh, a, it's a, a, a grotesque display of greed and immorality uh, it, it it's it's uh, forgive me, but it seems like a bunch of pigs feeding at the public trough and laughing while they uh, they while they do it. That's what it it it's like to me. Yeah, and this is where Russia has a much more conservative attitude towards things. They had a I don't know some famous person here had a naked party they're calling it. it wasn't really a bunch of naked people but almost um but they determined it was lewd and lascivious so they've arrested the woman who had this party filed charges against her all the politicians that were there the um you know actors whatever whoever was participating they're filing charges against them and it's like, you you know, we don't approve of this. We aren't going to allow you to do it. Um, and this is kind of the thing I'm seeing why Westerners are wanting to come to this country. Yeah, it's uh, I, I, a speech 
I recall, of Putin standing there saying that he doesn't want and nobody really wants to get into the private lives of people. But, you know, he, he says that marriage should be between a man and a woman. He's very conservative in those kinds of things and the, and the way he views those, those things. Mm-hmm. And, and he says, just look at what the West is doing to itself with, you know, the decadence, with the, um, the immorality, uh, homosexuality you know the thing i heard in the united states when i lived there for a long time was you know russia has made it illegal to be a homosexual or a lesbian reality is is they haven't they've made it illegal for you to adopt a child if you're homosexual they've made it illegal for you to marry if you're homosexual And if you leave the country and get married in another country that allows it and you come back here, they will not recognize you as a married couple. So you don't get any of the benefits of it. Now, if you want to do whatever you want to do in your own home, they don't care, but they don't want to see you uh, bringing it out on the street. They don't want it being shown to children or encouraging it. Uh, They recently outlawed sex change operations here. So, um, you know, reality is, is uh, the city next to us here, Simi's, used to be the homosexual capital of Crimea under Ukraine. Now, they still have a gay bar there, and even straight people go there. And they expect that's what they're going to see in the bar. And they're left alone as long as they don't come outside of the bar kissing and, you know, groping and, you know, doing things like that. Leave the bar, go home, do whatever you want to do. We don't care. This is kind of Russia's attitude. Hmm. Yeah. So here we have people protesting and fighting in the streets because of drag queen story time being held in, (laughs) uh, in libraries and in schools it it seems very disruptive over here and that seems to also be you know part of what is i don't know it's uh it's related almost in in my mind to the conflicts that we're seeing around the world it's economic it's also cultural it's it's uh, these wars are partly about religion, maybe not quite so much in, you know, the, the conflict in in Ukraine, but certainly in the Middle East. And then you have all this immigration happening here. It's changing the demographics here. Um, we are really in a place of instability here in the West, for sure. Um, I mean, I'm just throwing that out there. I'm not, that's not really a question, I guess. That's just me babbling on and making an observation based on what you've just said. But do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you know, even if you look at the Middle East, is it really about religion? It's about religion with one country that wants to take land from everybody. But all the Muslims, you know, all these guys practicing Islam, the you know, you start looking at guys out of Indonesia and and that whole area of Asia down in there. They fully support Palestinians. Um, you know, the entire Arab world has come together. They've linked arms. But the amazing thing is, is they're against what 
Israel is doing, yet they live side by side with Orthodox Russians, Catholic Russians. Um, you know, you even in a country the size of Russia, where you have Buddhists and Muslims and uh, Christians and atheists, they all just live together. You don't have the same issues. So why is it? Is it because all of these countries are against these liberal ideas? Or, you know, what is it? Why can people here live together? And people in the West can't, you know, live with other people in the world. I don't have an answer. I don't understand. I don't either. Don't know. I'm doing like you are. I'm kind of babbling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Kevin, is there anything else you'd like to, you know, draw our attention to today? Or is there anything we might be missing with regard to uh, um, this this conflict in Ukraine? I really am so grateful for what you've been doing there with your work. No, I don't. I don't think so. I think we've pretty much covered it. Um, you know, we're just seeing, you know, Ukraine take a little different tack than they normally have. And, you know, the idea is, is that, you know, we'll probably see some more strikes here in the next few days. If we do, I'll let you know. Quite honestly, I'd like them to you know, end the whole thing and let me get back to doing regular information warfare stuff and looking at some of the other conflicts going on. Yeah. And just finally, your thoughts on how long this thing is likely to go on, I guess, still no real end in sight. Yeah, I, you know, I'll be like the rest of the analysts out there. I'll, I'll throw a date out there sometime between spring and 2026. Okay. All right. That's, I think that's Best probably, yeah. that, that's a, probably a pretty fair assessment. Kevin yeah. Michalizzi, thank you so much, sir, for your time today. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me on again, Rick. Good talking with you. Oh, one last thing. Tell people again how they can find your work online. That's important. You know, I used to use my uh, Infowars.press site down here, but uh, I'm putting everything under American Crimea site now. You can find my information warfare stuff and everything by going to that website. Excellent. Okay. Kevin Michalizzi, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Maverick News. Fighting for freedom. The New World Order. Government overreach. The Great Reset. Mainstream media lies. Now more than ever, independent voices are needed. Donate now at freedomreporters.com. That's freedomreporters.com. Maverick News, the antivirus program for your mind.
Maverick News. The world is watching. Okay, and again, thank you to Kevin for spending the time with us here tonight. Extremely helpful. And I must apologize for the intermittent internet, the glitching and the problems. I'm so sorry about that, folks. We just have ongoing problems with our internet connection here. I don't know why. It's very frustrating. We continue to try to find solutions to it. It's just not optimal. However, we are doing our best. And while all of that is going on over there in Ukraine, we're still seeing ongoing um, attacks on merchant ships in the Red Sea from the Houthi rebels. We've seen the warnings from the West, from the United States to the Houthis, saying that if these attacks continue, they will be hit back. And even in the face of that, these attacks continue. And mounting pressure on Israel on the public relations side. We also saw today more public concern about anti-Semitism, rising anti-Semitism in Canada and the United States. I believe it was in Toronto where there was a, uh, the Toronto area, where there was a... uh, an incident at a grocery store. Yeah, Toronto. And uh, let me just see here. There was some some people making comments about this today. There was... um, a grocery store that was vandalized, I believe. In any event, you're getting the picture. And uh, all of this is ramping up, and we're seeing also incidents involving Muslims on the other side and Muslims being targeted. So more volatility, more instability, more anger, more fighting, all of that ramping up. Now, let's just pivot back for a moment to these, uh, this third release of documents in the Epstein saga. After doing my best to read as much of the material as I could during the break, a hum, which isn't very much time, and also getting some information coming in from contributors. It looks like overall, there really are you know isn't much new in this new document dump. In in fact, if you even look at yesterday, what was it yesterday? Losing track of time. The the second one. Uh, Again, not really a lot of new information came out of that. Just really confirmation of names and people involved um, in the past. And a lot of these allegations that were rehashed in media and online and social media platforms uh, 
Uh, yeah, it's just, it, if you really go back and look, you can really find information on just about all of that from before. And so today, this new cache of documents, a thousand pages approximately, so far, it doesn't look like there's much new in there. The one thing that is of interest is there was a, a guy who was acting as a driver. And there there was questioning and back and forth with this guy talking about how he was being used to pick up girls and then drive them over to Epstein's residence and drop them off. And every girl that he brought, he indicates in this questioning that he would receive a $200 payment. And here's a transcript from that. So this man said that he was roped into doing this by Jeffrey Epstein. And he did it for about six months. He became aware that Epstein was having three-way sex with his girlfriend, being, I guess, Ghislaine Maxwell and other women, people. So this claim was included in this third batch of documents, which had been previously sealed. And this was, uh, these were statements really that go all the way back to 2016 in a deposition given by Tony Figuera. I can't pronounce his last name. Figueroa? F-I-G-U-E-R-O-A. We'll call him Mr. T. Okay. So he... He's, Mr. T got 200 bucks every time he brought a girl over. And uh, this went on, as he said, for about six months. And then I guess he stopped doing it. He was also aware that a lot of the women coming in, or some of the women coming in, I shouldn't say a lot, but some of the women coming around were uh, involved, or it looks like they were hanging out with Victoria's Secret models. Now, I don't know that there was anything inappropriate going on with those particular people, but references being made in these documents about it. Um, other things to come out of this, um, there was a list of search terms that Gaffray's attorneys used to search Maxwell's devices when they were given access to them. They used phrases like Andrew, Clinton, pedophile, and the names of many of the victims. And then there was one file. Uh, there was all in one one of these files. There was a list of handwritten phone messages that had been left for Epstein. Um, one made by again Victoria's Secret mogul Les Wexner's wife Abigail, and it looks like this, as you're seeing on the screen. Did Jeffrey call you directly about getting more girls? Answer: Yes. Question on the phone. Answer: Uh huh. In the affirmative. 
Question, what did he say? Answer, he was just asking me, <coughs> excuse me, if I had any other girls that wanted to come to work. Question, okay, is that the term that he used? Answer, yeah. Question, and did he pay? He paid you personally? Answer, yeah. He handed me $200 for every girl that I walked in that door, whether they did stuff with him or not. Question in cash? Answer, cash. Did you ever get paid by Ms. Maxwell for that? Answer, no. And there you go. So that was another little excerpt from those documents. But other than that, folks, it doesn't look like there is much new coming out of this additional document dump. 1,000 approximately pages long. Uh, but there is still more to come in the days ahead. So we'll keep our ear to the ground and our eye, one eye open for sure on that one. So we'll keep you up to date right here. Don't go away. More after this. Is watching. What else do we have going on here? Long time face of the National Rifle Association, Wayne LaPierre, has resigned from his position with the NRA. He cites health reasons for his departure, says he's proud of his tenure with the organization. It's effective at the end of this month, January 31st, but it comes just days before proceedings in a corruption lawsuit filed against the NRA. Mr. LaPierre and other NRA executives by Democratic New York Attorney General Letitia James, and that is, uh, those proceedings are set to begin, I guess, next week. James was originally petitioned, had originally petitioned the New York State Supreme Court to dissolve the NRA. But back in March of last year, those claims were dismissed. So the court will hear Ms. James claims that Mr. LaPierre and former NRA officials, Wilson Phillips, John Fraser, and Joshua Powell, misused NRA funds to pay for personal expenses including travel on private jets. That, folks, is a violation of New York law. 
we don't know where that's going, but the resignation seems to be, well, let's just put it this way, a little bit suspicious, a little bit, I don't know, don't know exactly what to make of that. Maybe just, just make of that what you will, I guess. Just another news story today in a very, very busy news day. What else do we have for you? Did you know or did you see that Pepsi products are being pulled from store shelves from some grocery stores in Europe? So this global supermarket chain, Carrefour will stop selling PepsiCo products. It has already pulled a lot of these off the shelves because of giant price hikes. So this grocery store chain says it pulled these products from store shelves in France yesterday. And they've added small signs in the stores that say, we no longer sell this brand due to unacceptable price increases. So this comes along at a time when there's a new French law that's meant to fight the rising cost of living. Inflation. And this has supermarkets facing millions of dollars in fines if they don't reach a deal with suppliers on prices by the end of this month. Now, (laughs) oh, this is a slippery slope and a dangerous thing in my view. So this ban is also going to extend to Belgium, Spain, and Italy. But the grocery store chain, which has over 12,000 stores in over 30 different countries, uh, has not said whether it will take effect in those countries or not. Um, Pepsi has said, has responded to this, I guess they say that They have been in discussion with the grocery store chain for many months, and they'll continue to engage in good faith in order to try to ensure that their products are available. So Pepsi, as you, I'm sure you're well aware, being a big corporation, they sell a wide variety of different um, snack products and food products, including Cheetos, Mountain Dew, Rice-A-Roni. Prices have increased by double digits over seven straight financial quarters. Most recently, there was an 11% price increase between July and September. PepsiCo's profits apparently are up, even though sales are down because they... uh, you know, they're facing the the challenges of inflation too, right? And they've been trying to compensate with smaller package sizes and uh, smaller portions, I guess, to make things a little more affordable that way, but you're not getting any more value. Now, I think personally... When you look at these companies, every every big company is profit oriented. That's they have a fiduciary duty to the shareholders of their company in order to maximize profits. 
That being said, what we're seeing here in the West, and we alluded to this in the interview with Kevin, is these um, these governments have been printing money like it's going out of style, and as a result, you have it. You have a lot like unprecedented levels of inflation. I would say. And it doesn't matter where you go in the supply chain or, you know, from production to consumer, distribution, retail, wholesale, wherever, everybody's facing higher costs. So then these politicians come along and they're the ones, honestly, who have created this problem all through our Western countries with massive money printing, especially during the pandemic. Now we are starting to see you know, the real impacts, the real impact from this inflationary monetary policy where they were giving away free money to people. When somebody gives you something for free, it isn't really free. You will end up paying for it through higher taxes, through inflation, less buying power. Your dollar goes, doesn't go as far. Prices rise. And then the politicians point to the big corporations and they say, it's all their fault. No, it was the politicians who did it. Now, the corporations are going to respond the way they're supposed to. They're, going to. they're obviously going to try to maximize profits. But I wouldn't say that they're exploiting the situation, in my view. Like maybe there might be some opportunities in some cases where a company might be able to exploit a particular situation. But don't kid yourself either and don't misunderstand, you know, you can, on paper, make it look like you have higher profits in a company, but if the value of the dollar is worth less, then those profits are offset by that. The real blame, all I'm saying, not that I have much sympathy for these big companies either because they get all kinds of subsidies and tax breaks from these governments anyway. All I'm saying is the real blame lies with the politicians. Because they're the ones who have been out there buying your votes with your money through monetary policy, economic policies that have really diminished your, your buying power. They're, they're lying to you when they do it. And then they point their finger here or they point their finger there. Politicians are like that. They're always looking for a scapegoat. That's also why when the economy starts to tank, you're much more likely to get yourself into uh, an era of war. And when a war breaks out, they also start looking for scapegoats there too. Historically, that's a demonstrable fact. And Kevin also alluded to that, saying that he thinks Joe Biden is going to be running, hoping that as a wartime president, he will be reelected because he will be popular, that people will, mm, I, he didn't really phrase it this way, so I'll add this. I think Biden is probably hoping, just like Justin Trudeau will be hoping, that a conflict, a war, will galvanize national support that it will galvanize support for him 
And it will also serve as a distraction to the, the problems that they have created, namely uh, economic problems, inflation again. So then like they've been doing all along with this war in Ukraine and now this situation is, is escalating in the Middle East, blame the problems with the economy on the war. Oh, well, you have to pay higher prices. It's not us. It's the war. You just have to make do with less. No, the reality is the economic policies cause the problems. The war is exacerbating things, making things even worse. But it's a monetary policy that's the root cause of all the inflation. And the munitions manufacturing, all the money being dumped into weapons is creating an artificial economic boom. And I wouldn't even call it a boom, but you could call it an economic recovery coming off the pandemic. You can think about it in that way as well. You know, challenges in the economy because of the pandemic. They shut the economy down. They need to bring things back. So what do they do? You know, historically, they look at war as being something that's good for the economy. Yeah, and on the numbers column, and yes, you do put some people to work producing arms. So there is that whole industry. But in the long run, wars don't, I think, don't really benefit society at all because they're sort of counterproductive. You're blowing up your wealth. You're destroying everything. But I guess they get to build back better after. It's misguided. Imagine where our society would be if all that money had been put into building infrastructure, creating assets that increase productivity, improve the lives of people over time, roads, bridges, factories, produce things, put people to work that way. No, they'd rather blow stuff up and then rebuild afterward, leaving in their wake death. Don't let a little inflation stop you from going on vacation with your estranged wife and your kids if you're just Trudeau. But karma's coming around, it seems. Uh, apparently, 
New reports just coming in. The JT's plane has broken down. They went on vacation in Jamaica. And this is the second time in just a number of, well, a number of months where the PM's plane has gone on the fritz. So the Department of National Defense is saying that the Challenger plane that was um, sent to Jamaica this week for Justin Trudeau and his family to fly down for their Caribbean vacay uh, apparently is busted. There's a maintenance issue on the CC-144 discovered during an inspection of the aircraft. Uh, it was... Uh, it was discovered on January 2nd, according to this statement from the Department of National Defense. So they've sent down a second plane uh, carrying a maintenance team. Off they go into the, uh, the land of the sun. And so... There was some controversy surrounding his vacation this time around. There's a lot of questions anyway. And apparently Trudeau said something to the effect of he's, I don't think, I think he said that this is not actually costing taxpayers money, that he's staying with, a, with a, someplace with friends or something. But flying on that jet costs a fair bit of money. I want to get the, uh, the, the, the goods on his vacation, though. I can't remember what I was reading about it, but I'm pretty sure that's what he said. Let me confirm it. I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell you on the other side of this. Maverick News. The world is watching. Yes, sir. So I, I, I did have this sort of right, but I've got the info here. I did put this aside yesterday and uh, because of all the Epstein stuff and everything else going on. Uh, didn't quite get to this, but Justin Trudeau being asked questions about this um, this kind of activity that he gets involved in when he goes on vacations. Uh, the opposition parties they're criticizing him for spending winter, his winter holiday at an oceanfront villa in Jamaica at, again, no cost. This story really is was broken by the National Post. Rooms there go for about $9,300 per night. 
according to the website uh, for this resort where he was staying. Prospect Estate and Villas, located near Ocho Rios. It's owned by uh, Peter Green. He's a businessman. And the Green family has been friends with the Trudeaus for a long time. So according to this National Post report, Justin vacationed at Prospect Estate from December 26th until yesterday. He went down there with Sophie and their three children. Now, if he had paid for this on his own, this nine-night stay would have cost nearly $84,000. Well, that's quite the favor, isn't it? So the PM's office has not confirmed where Trudeau and his family stayed in Jamaica, but we know he was down there. And we have this report from the National Post. And apparently, Trudeau went to the ethics commissioner and got the vacation cleared before he went down there, so he says. And so there was a statement issued by... The, uh, the PM's office says the prime minister and his family are staying with family friends at no cost. As per standard practice, the office of the conflict of interest and ethics commissioner was consulted on these details prior to the travel to ensure that the rules were followed. That from the prime minister's press secretary, Mohammed Hussein and the PM, it says here continues to reimburse the equivalent of a commercial airline ticket for his personal travel and that of his family. <laughs> so he flies down there on a government plane, reimburses the government for the cost of a commercial airline ticket for his personal travel and you know the equivalent of what it would cost to fly commercial, but gets his own private plane stays at this place for free worth about 84 grand and i'm sure there's you know no favors being exchanged there what a what a joke now i guess i i mean if you've got the friends and you've got the connections and they want to put you up in a hotel for 84 grand fine you know to get the equivalent value of that I can't imagine that any hotel room is worth $84,000 over that period of time. Must be one heck of a nice room with pretty great room service. But that stuff does exist out there. And I guess if somebody wants to give it to you for free, you can have it for free. But man, I'll tell you this. I'd want to know what might be coming back on the other side of that. Mr. Green, if he's getting contracts or there's any kind of favors being provided as a result of that, that would then make it a conflict of interest, wouldn't it? So therein lies a different world, man. Those people live a different life. 
You know, I think the prime minister's salary is about $178,000 a year. That kind of money in itself does not put you in the same league as these high-flying elites around the world. Now, I would imagine JT gets some additional compensation on top of that. But if he was really just working for the salary that comes with being prime minister, that's what he would have to live on, 178. Do you really think that he could afford $84,000 over nine days on a prime minister's salary? No. So I guess it's a good thing he's getting it for free. Just doesn't seem right somehow to me, though, does it to you? Something doesn't seem right. If for no other reason, it's just not fair. It's just, it's, it's, again, in my view, pretty grotesque. If uh, you'd like to support the show, you can do that by donating. At uh, maverickdonations.com, you can support the show as well by donating at freedomreporters.com. That's where most people donate. And we still have these. I'm out of these um, Knights of Malta um, hoodies. We still have these ones, Maverick News hoodies. And if anybody donates $60 or more, to the show to help fund the operation. I will send you one of these for free. Just send your address and your, so I get your, have your shipping information and tell me what size you want. And I'll make sure you get one of these. We still have the Maverick news ones in stock. I'm getting more of the Knights of Malta um, hoodies made. It's just going to take uh, a little bit of time because uh, I send them out. I don't do them myself. I've got to, I kept them done professionally so and they're quite nice so uh they're all there for you sixty dollars or more for those and um i'll send you one freedomreporters.com also please consider subscribing liking sharing and you can also donate through the uh rumble rants on rumble and please consider subscribing to our rumble channel because that is where we are growing the fastest and that is also a free speech platform where we are not likely to get banned and tonight we're not even broadcasting on Facebook. I kind of gave up on it here for a few days while we regroup and deal with some of the issues over there on Facebook that are still ongoing and ongoing problems with YouTube as well, which hopefully we can return to our main channel next week when our ban over there comes to an end. So uh, if nothing else, it tells me that we are on the right track, doing the right things, getting you closer to the truth because these establishment um, social media platforms really don't seem to like what we're doing very much. <laughs> but that's okay, because I ain't quitting. And tomorrow night, here on Maverick News, we'll have a special guest on to talk about the legal challenges still facing freedom fighters in Canada as they make their way through the court system. And there will be talk about what you can do to help them and support them if you feel that that is something you would like to do. So make sure you tune in tomorrow night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on the Maverick News Channel, and we will bring you all that information, and I'm sure that will be a particular interest to all you guys out there. 
So thank you very much for uh, spending your time here again with me tonight, folks. As always, a real privilege. And we will catch you tomorrow night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, on the flip side. This has been a Maverick Multimedia Productions.